Hello there, and let's get started. Uh, we're going to be speaking about this little word. Uh, it's on the screen called jolted. Jolted. And we'll get to a good definition of that word here in just a minute. But this is in association, if we want to go on to the next screen here, this is in association with, with the meaning of life, really. The meaning of life. And searching for God. And making sure that the course that we are upon is the right path. Okay. Isaiah 55 verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. So this morning we have in mind a sort of a broad message about searching for God. And what that involves, making sure that we're on the right path. So let's go on back now to the next place. Uh, think about the word jolted for a second. The word jolted. I like this word, jolted. Jolted. Now physically, it means that um, something or someone just kind of in an abrupt way, a rough way, um, pushes us. Or moves us in some way. Okay. Uh, if you've ever come out of a crowded ball game, just the surge of the crowd may just push upon you. Okay. Uh, my mother uh, liked to use the word jar. If we hit a pothole, she would say, that jarred me. That jarred me. That's the ideal. Jostle. Jolted. Jolted. Now internally, when something happens in life, Situations in life sometimes will jolt us, okay? A crisis or something surprising or shocking will come along that will cause us to stop and reflect and maybe even make a positive change uh, in our lives. That's the ideal of this morning, being jolted. And we're going to get to the fact that God jolts us. He jars us. But going to the next screen here. But first, we need to recognize why it is that God needs to jolt us. And that's because many of us are asleep. Most people walking around are spiritually asleep. Before Bible class this morning, Brother Chris read from Romans 13 and verse 11 and 12. Uh, the hour has come that we should awake out of sleep. For our salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. Okay. Why is he talking about salvation in that way? Because we're not completely saved. We're not ultimately saved until we finally get home to heaven. Many people have been baptized into Christ and received salvation initially only to wander away and leave the faith later and not ultimately make it home to heaven. And Paul is encouraging there in Romans 13, 11, and 12... He says, we need to come out of our sleep because our salvation is nearer to us than we first believed. Stay awake, stay awake, he's saying. Ephesians 5 and verse 14, Paul says, Awake you who sleeps. Awake, O sleeper. Rise from the dead so that Christ may be able to shine upon you. And so the reason that God needs to jolt us is because 
many times that we're asleep. Okay. And so let's move on now to our next spot here. So in our lesson this morning, in our minds, maybe even on your paper, make two columns. Two columns. The reasons, first of all, the reasons that we're asleep and the main reason why God needs to jolt us is because we're asleep. And so we'll first notice some reasons why we're asleep. And then secondly, we'll notice some ways in which God jolts us, jars us uh, out of our sleep. Okay, so that's that's the direction that we're going. Just wanted to set the table and so here we go. Here are some reasons why we're often spiritually asleep. Reason number one is distractions. Distractions. Okay. We are a distracted people. Jesus talks about it in Luke 8 and verse 14 when he speaks about the cares, the pleasures, and riches of this life. This is, this is Satan's weapons of mass distraction, you might say. Okay. The cares, the pleasures, the riches of life. Someone has said that we get, um, we get to where we have so much to live with that we don't stop and ask, what are we living for? Okay. People get so deep into their riches and pleasures, they start living for that. They live for their pleasures, they live for their worries, they live for their riches, okay. and they're losing total track of what real life is all about. We get so wrapped up and tied up in the things that we have and, and, and all about ourselves that we are totally unaware that there is a real life out there that we are to be pursuing. The old-timey preachers, going way back, the old-timey preachers used to speak of this as, as living in a world without windows. Living in a world without windows. And what they mean is you, you are living for all the things that you see, but you don't realize that there's a soul and that there are etern- eternal matters that are well worth or much more uh, value than what we are seeing. Okay. And they would, the old-timey preachers would illustrate it like this. Suppose you had a family and the parents are rearing their children just in a cave. And the children just being brought up in a cave and never leave the cave. And all the children see of themselves is from the, from the fire, all they see inside the cave is just their shadow on the wall of the cave. But then finally one of the children escapes and, and goes out into the world and, and comes back and reports and says there's, there's green out here, there's water out here, there's vegetation out here, there's animal life out here. And the other children hardly can believe it because they've never ever seen it. So in the same way we can get so wrapped up in, in what we're doing and who we are and what we have that we're totally unaware that there's an entire life the true meaning of life that awaits uh, us. Okay. So our distractions cause us to be asleep. I'll tell you something else that causes us to be asleep, and that is the, the wealth of information that's around us. There is just a blizzard of information that comes upon us all the time in rapid fashion. And there's so much of it, so many beliefs, so many pathways, so many people, so many people saying so many different things that a lot of times people just give up on ever, ever trying to find true meaning in life, the true God. But that's the value of scriptures. Paul says 
In 2 Timothy 3 and verse 15, in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 15, he says, The scriptures will make us wise unto salvation. And he encourages Timothy to stay with the scriptures and the things that he has learned because they're able to make him wise unto salvation. And what that means is that the scriptures are the framework through which we see the world. And if we are looking at the world through, that, through the framework of scripture, then we're able to discern. We're able to be wise. We're able to know about all these facts and all these people, and we're able to know what to ignore, what to correct, what to lay aside. We're able to stay on the path and go right through all the, the jostle of life because we have the scriptures uh, that are guiding us. But many times we're asleep because of all the, the flood of facts and ideals that just surround us, but with the scriptures, uh, that doesn't have to be uh, overwhelming. And then a third reason that we're sometimes asleep is because we just simply don't know how to search. We don't know how to search. Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek out the Lord while he may be found. But we don't know what it means to search. You know, we live in a day of, of channel surfing. Or, or uh, shopping. We're, we're shoppers and we're hoppers. Okay. We're, we, we surf the channels. We, we click and we click and we click there. We're curious, but that's not searching. Okay. Searching is urgent. Searching is something that comes out of desperation. Okay. To search means to hunger and thirst. As we read in Isaiah, or rather I should say Psalm 42, Psalm 42, 1 and 2. We sing the song, you know, as the deer pants after the water brooks, so my soul pants after you, O Lord. That's it. That's it. We don't know how to search. We don't realize that as you search for God, it ought to be the ultimate thing in life. Job, Job 23, 12 says that he nourished up the words of God in his heart, uh, more than his necessary food, you see. Job went after the words of God before he went after food. Right. And so we're often asleep because we don't know what it means to really search. And we're also, a fourth reason that we're asleep sometimes is because we don't look at God as a personal God. We keep him somewhat at arm's length. We forget that he's a person. He's a person. Above all, he is the Lord. He is a he. He's a he. Now, the Bible passages and the ideals and principles and arguments and discussions that come out of these passages, they, they are to lead us to the Lord. In order to have a relationship with him, to be one-on-one with him. When you listen to Paul, you see that. Philippians 3, 10 and 11, the Apostle Paul says his goal was to know Christ. To know Christ. And to know the power of his resurrection. To know the fellowship of his sufferings. But to know Christ. Paul says in Philippians 1, 
21. For me to live is, is Christ. Is Christ. We, we don't worship a passage. We, we don't pray to a philosophy. Okay. We don't talk about an argument. We talk about the Lord God. He is a He. We must make sure that we remain in contact with Him, that we, we, that we seek to, to be with Him, to walk with Him, to be His servant, to look at Him as our God, as, as who He is, as a real uh, person, the greatest person, the greatest thought of a person you could ever think, the Lord God. Peter says in 1 Peter 2 and verse 3, 1 Peter 2 and verse 3, taste and see, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see the Lord is good. We're not going to find God by sitting at a table or sitting in a recliner and just reviewing the different philosophies of life. You have to actually get up and follow him. You have to go and try out what he is encouraging us to do. We must get involved with him and follow him. Take up your cross and follow me. Because he is a, a real person. Someone may bring a great looking dish, a casserole, and, and lay it before us. And, but until you taste that casserole, then you have no idea of the blessing that is there. It's the same way with God. Taste and see that he is, he is good. Get up and follow him and know that he is the personal God that he claims to be. There are reasons that we fall asleep and we need jolting from God. One of the main reasons is, and I have no other word for it, is we just get zoned out. We get zoned out. For some reason or another, we just, we're, just, we're just in a state of slumber. We see an example of this in Luke 24, verse 11, as some were coming back from the tomb reporting that Jesus is not there. He has been raised from the dead. He's not there. We have seen him. Well, Luke 24, 11, as that's being reported, there's a certain group. And here's what it says. To this certain group that heard this, it seemed to them as an idle tale. This is how they, re they, they respond to the news that Jesus is not in the tomb, that he has been raised from the dead. They responded to it as if it was an idle tale. Can, can you believe that? Is, could that actually be true? Could some, after, after having experienced Jesus, after having seen him turn water to wine, walk on the water, see him heal, see him cast out demons, see him raise people from the dead, hear him promise that on the third day he's going to be raised from the dead. Hear him predict that he's going to be crucified by those uh, in Jerusalem. And then when you hear tell of it, it's just an idle tale. Those people were in some sort of, were in some sort of state of slumber. And, and sometimes we find ourselves there as well. Well, let's move on now to some ways in which God jolts us. How does God jolt us? Remember, there are two big ways before we get specific here. There are two big ways. God, through his word, wakes us up, of course. But then also God, through his providence, will wake us up. For example, when you think about providence, you're thinking about how that God will work through natural means, sort of in an indirect way, 
in a way that would favor us in following his will. In John 15, for example, verse 2, Jesus said, he had just said, I am the vine, you are the branches. And he said, those of you who bear fruit, the Lord will prune. Now this is providence. So that you may be able to bear more fruit. We tend to look at bad things as bad things when God is actually using that bad thing to help us to bear more fruit for him. So no doubt God uh, jolts us. Okay. I've asked this before. Let me just take a break here because I'm about to get real fast here. I'm going to finish this out real fast. The next nine minutes it's going to be done. Okay. But before I get to that, okay, I've asked this before and I've been very disappointed. Okay. When I look out and say, do you, do you watch Andy Griffin? And people just look at you like, I just don't think I do. It's just not a habit of mine. Okay. And it's so disappointing. But speaking of being jolted, there's a, there's a time when Andy and Barney, they have to go up into the mountains because Ernest T. is causing trouble. So they have to get up early, way early one morning, to get up to the mountains. Okay. So Andy goes in to wake Barney up. Does this ring a bell to anybody? And he does everything uh, he could think of. Blowing a whistle, clapping his hands. Barney's sleeping and snoring. It's an incredible scene of how they're able to pull that off. And then finally, Andy just gives up and just snaps his finger and Barney wakes right up. But uh, he's jolting him. He, he raises his arm. He, he blows a whistle in his face, trying to jolt him out of his sleep. And nothing is working what does God use specifically? Let's name just a few things. First and foremost, God uses guilt. God uses guilt. This is one of the huge things he does. He uses guilt. Okay. Guilt is that feeling that we have when we know that we have violated the law of God. And the proper response to that is to be responsible about it. And seek to repent and turn from our ways as the Lord instructs us. This is called godly sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10. It was godly sorrow that those on the day of Pentecost had. Acts 2 and verse 37. As Peter had just said, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. And they were all pricked in their heart. They were all cut to the heart. It was their guilt combined with, with Peter's inspired words that brought about their eventual repentance and obedience and baptism. Okay. And so guilt, guilt, the good news. Okay. Guilt is a gift from God. And the good news is that God, in His good news, the gospel, tells us the bad news that we are sinners, which turns around and is good news for us because God provides a relief, a release from that guilt through Jesus and His blood as we submit uh, to Him. And we, first and foremost, if we're going to arise out of sleep, 
We've got to learn to let the law of God and the sin that we have committed convict us that indeed Jesus is the way and that we have done wrong. We must follow him. We were in the book of James this past week a couple of times studying in men's class. James 2 is incredible. And we talked about the sin of respect to persons, partiality, showing favor to some while ignoring others. Huge sin. Okay, James discusses that in James 2, verse 8 and 9. He gets down to it. He says, of course, part of the law of God today is to love one another, love each other as God loves you, love each other as, as you would uh, love yourself. And he says, but if you show partiality, he says, James 2, verse 9, if you show partiality, then you are convicted by the law as transgressors and have become judges of evil thoughts. Okay. In other words, your soul is in deep trouble. But because of guilt being combined with the Word of God, we can find uh, refreshment in Jesus. So first of all, God uses guilt. Secondly, He uses death. He uses death. To jolt us. It ought to work. In Ecclesiastes 9... Verses 1 through 5 or 6, Ecclesiastes 9, Solomon mentions death. This is one of the things that caused Solomon to finally turn to God. He calls it the one event, the main event that is common to everyone, whether you're righteous or unrighteous, whether you're good or evil, whether you're clean or unclean, whether you sacrifice or you don't sacrifice, still, no matter this one event, comes to all and he talks about it in its death. He says, the living know they shall die. Death. And Jesus uses this. If you'll notice in Luke 12, verses uh, 20 and 21, he had just given the story of the man who, who was so rich, he had big barns and going to tear down. He's making his plans. Okay. On the very day, this man, this rich man is making his plans to tear down these barns and build bigger barns. On that very day that he's saying to his soul, one day we'll just be able to look at ourselves, take it easy and just enjoy life. On that very day, Jesus says he didn't know that that night his soul was going to be required of him. Okay. In other words, that man as he's making these plans, he never considered the fact that that night he's about to die. And then who shall these things be? And then what's he going to do about his soul? His soul's going to be lost. Okay. Jesus is saying in that story, if the man had considered death, and that the fact of the matter being that at death, you're going to have to give an account of your soul, then perhaps his life would have went in a di different direction. Jesus uses death to jolt us. The news of death, the reality of death, he brings it before us in order to change our ways or help us to grow more spiritual. Years ago, there was a man who was scheduled for to have an MRI scanner. He never had one. 
And so as they got him prepared, one of the guy nurses said, are you claustrophobic? He said, why do you ask? The nurse said, well, our nickname for this MRI scanner is the coffin machine. The coffin machine. And so we're just wondering what your reaction is going to be. The thought of that makes us realize that one day we will all lay in a coffin. Put yourself there. Imagine yourself laying there in a coffin and your entire life is scrolling before your eyes. How does it look? If that was actually taking place today and you had a chance to get out of that coffin and live again, what kind of changes would you make? what God uses. God uses death. Death. But a third thing God uses, He uses the emptiness of this world. Emptiness of this world. Of all the things that Peter ever said, one of my favorite questions, I think one of the most powerful questions that Peter ever asked is found in John 6 about verse 68. Jesus had just looked to Peter and, and His disciples because it was getting close to crucifixion time and many were giving up on Jesus and it was getting too hot and they were leaving him. So Jesus looked to his disciples and said, will you also go away? Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. But that's an incredible question. Lord, where shall we go? If a person in his or her life decide, okay, I'm not going in the direction of God, anymore then what waits upon you what is out there for you okay and when you think about how empty the world is you may not understand everything about God there may be some things that are disappointing about God right now in your life but when you stop and consider well what else is waiting on me out there what is the alternative to God it is very bleak it is very bleak one person summed it up this way. He said, my belief rests on these two things, Jesus and a lack of alternatives. That's what it boils down to. You've got Jesus, and then tell me your alternatives. Well, Jesus looks a lot better. You see, opposite of God, there's no real answers. You think about the incident in Acts 16, and Paul and Silas are in prison, and God sends an earthquake. It opens up the prison doors. And also the shackles on Paul and Silas just fall right off. The response of the jailer is that he's going to kill himself because he supposes the prisoners are all going to escape. Paul said, "Do your stop right there. Do yourself no harm. We are all here. And then the jailer asked the question, Acts 16 verse 30, what must I do to be saved? You see what the jailer realized? He realized that in his world, the world in which he has been living, there are no real answers. And he had been hearing, as others had, they've been hearing Paul and Silas, even though they were licking their wounds from being stricken and beaten many times, yet they had been praying to God and worshiping God at midnight. And so the jailer, all of a sudden, in just a little while, he realized my world doesn't have any real answers, but the world of Paul's God does. 
See, opposite God, there's no real answers. That's what, that's what the prodigal son learned, right? He, he, the prodigal son left home in search of a certain life, but that certain life, it ends up, it didn't have real answers. So Luke 15, 17 says that the prodigal finally came to himself and began to say to himself, how many, how many of my father's servants back at my father's house, how they have bread enough and to spare, and here I am, I'm perishing with hunger. Opposite of God, there are no real answers. Opposite to God, there's really just despair. Despair. Bleakness. There's a little phrase that Paul points out in Ephesians 2, 11 and 12 that, that without God, without Christ, there's no hope. We are just strangers to God. There's no hope. And of course you would expect that just, you know, just from your knowledge of the book of Ecclesiastes that Solomon would bring this out. In fact, Solomon opens up the book of Ecclesiastes talking about this bleakness. Chapter 1, verse 2, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, uh, says the preacher. Emptiness, emptiness, emptiness. And what he's saying is, he's saying away from God, it's just despair. It's just despair. Think about if, if we didn't believe in God, what are we? What are, someone's described it as, as just, we're just fluttering birds. We, we, we're birds, we're, we're, we're fluttering along, we, we come out of darkness, we fly out of darkness, we come into light for a while, and then we fly right back into that darkness. Absolutely, we didn't come from meaning, meaning, we didn't have any meaning, and we go and we have no meaning further. We're just, we're just a bunch of fluttering birds. We're coming from oblivion into oblivion with no meaning, no real existence whatsoever. Nothing but uh, despair. But then, so we see here that God uses both guilt and death and the emptiness of the world. Let me see what time it is. I would say also that God uses the seasons of life, wouldn't you? And the reason I bring this up is because, because of an example found in Genesis uh, chapter 5, 21 to 24. You remember this man named Enoch. It says that, that um, he lived for 65 years and then he begat Methuselah. And after he begat Methuselah, it says he walked with God and for the rest of his life, I think it's 365 years, he, he walked with God. It seems like that that particular point in his life of Enoch's life, the responsibility of a wife, the responsibility of work, the responsibility of a family, the responsibility of, of children, finally dawned on him, finally caused him to realize, I can't do this by myself. What is life really all about anyway? And so he began to walk with God at that point. We know that life is brief. James says it's like a vapor that appears for a little time in James 4. We know that life is uncertain. We know that there are seasons of life. We can point out the seasons of life. We can divide our life between, you know, up into different segments like spring, summer, fall, and winter. What season are you in? Or first, second, third, and fourth quarter. 
what quarter are you in, but we also know that we're not guaranteed all the game. We're not guaranteed all the quarters. We're not guaranteed all the year. We're not guaranteed all the seasons of life. But the seasons of life themselves, whether we're living or whether they come to an end, cause us to stop and consider. And finally, I would say, things that God uses to jar us. There are many, of course. In addition to guilt and death and the emptiness of the world and the changing seasons of life, we'd have to say just the sheer greatness of Jesus would cause us to stop in our steps and shake us to our very foundations. At least this is what has happened in the past. Think about in John 1, Philip went and got Nathaniel. John, John 1, 46 to 49. Nathaniel's reaction was, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He didn't expect much. But when he arrived and met Jesus, Jesus said, behold an Israelite in whom is no guile. Now, stop right there. Jesus points out that Nathaniel is a very good man. It would be, you'd be hard-pressed to find any deceit in Nathaniel's life, yet he still needed Jesus, didn't he? Okay. Just walking around being a really good person does not mean you have found life. Nathaniel hasn't found it. Even though Jesus has pointed out there's no guile in this man, there's no deceit in this man, still he needed the Lord. So Jesus looked to him and said, Behold, an Israelite in whom is no guile. Nathanael said to Jesus, How is it that you know me? Jesus said, Nathanael, before Philip come and got you, when you were sitting under the fig tree, I saw you there. And then the greatness of Jesus just came pouring into his soul. He said, My Lord, my God, you are the King of Israel. This same thing occurs again and again throughout many examples of Scripture. We could think about the lady at the well when she, John 4, 25 and 26, when, when she said to Jesus, she had heard Jesus speak in such eloquent terms. She said, I know that a Messiah is supposed to be coming. Jesus said, I who speak unto you, I am he. She, she left her water pot. She couldn't stand it any longer. She had to go tell people about it. Come and see. I think this is the Christ. Could this be the Christ? I really think it is. The sheer greatness and love of Christ ought to stop us and jolt us. Jolted. Jolted. We need jolting because sometimes life causes us to fall asleep. The end goal of all of us is to be committed to our Lord. That's the end goal for God for us. I've heard from different missionaries that in Kenya, the brethren describe faith in comparison to a lion. That when a lion pounces on its victim, that he does so with all four legs. He, not just with one, not just with a swap, but when he has his eyes fixed, 
on his victim. He'll go and pounce on them on all four legs, totally committed to what he's doing. And so Jesus says, we are to love the Lord God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength. Committed. Before we can be committed, we must be jolted out of our sleep, enlightened by the Word of God, confirmed of His goodness, and then we can be committed uh, to His will. Jolted. Jolted. It is high time that we arise out of sleep. Perhaps we can examine ourselves like the prodigal son and we can truly come home. Come home. There, the place where everybody belongs is at the side of our God. Will you come home? Let's all stand and sing at this time.